Let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, this morning, as we come to your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit and the, the power and authority of the scriptures would bear fruit in our lives. God, I pray that the scripture would be clear, that the instruction that you give through your son, Jesus, to the audience that we're going to look at this morning, these 70 disciples that, that, go, that go out from Christ, I pray that as we evaluate the instructions that were given to them, as we observe our own lives and recognize the call that we have as well to be sent from you to the world, God, I pray that we would have the same dependence, the dependence that these disciples can have in a God who is over the mission, that it is a, a, de a dependence that, that we can have as well. And Lord, I pray that your word would bear fruit in our lives, would yield an urgency in us, a desire to share the good news of the gospel to the people who you have put in our way, that we would be faithful representatives of Jesus Christ, uh, the, the, the message and the mission and the faithfulness of Christ to the Father, that that would be evident in our lives as well as we demonstrate the same kind of dependence that we're going to look at this morning. And God, as we recognize the riskiness and really the danger of the, of the work that you've called us to, may we as your people embrace the potential risk, the danger that exists, and may we, we, may we press forward in the work of, of, the, of the gospel ministry that we've been called to carry out. Father, I pray that you would be faithful this morning, that your presence would be understood and known, and that you would carry us as your people into the world to represent you in a way that, uh, that draws attention to the wonder and the splendor of who you are. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be taking a look at Luke chapter 10. And, and as we saw in Luke chapter 9, now we're beginning to, to transition in Christ's ministry. We're, we're transitioning now, as, as we saw in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that, that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. And we're going to see in our text this morning, and, and, and as we continue through Luke chapter 10, and as we're moving our way to the end of the gospel of Luke, we're going to see that, that, that really Luke chapter 9 was kind of the pinnacle of Christ's ministry, and then Luke chapter 10 to the end of the gospel, now we're going to begin to see the opposition that Jesus begins to face in ministry, which will culminate in his crucifixion on the cross and then his resurrection. Luke, the writer of this gospel narrative, has been featuring a, a word that, that we've seen a number of times throughout this gospel and maybe not even have realized it. It's, it's the word good news. This is the, the Greek word euangelizo, and, and we've seen it from the very beginnings of this gospel, and, and we're going to see it as we continue this work because that was the, the focus of Christ's ministry in, in preaching the good news. Luke will emphasize the, the use of this word ten times more than any other gospel writers. Matthew only uses this word once. 
Mark and John won't use this word at all. And then when we get to the, the, the book two, as it were, of Luke's account, the, the chronicle of Christ's ministry, then working in the apostles, in, in the, the development of the, this new church in the book of Acts, we're, we're going to see this word will continue now 15 times as, as now the disciples of this church age and those who are following after Christ after his ascension to the Father are going to carry out the work of Christ in carrying this good news to the world. We saw in the Gospel of Luke, the very first chapter, an evidence of good news coming to the forefront. As the angel Gabriel will come to Zechariah and he, he will say that I am bringing you good news of a son. And then in Luke chapter 2, the angels will come to the shepherds and we know what they say. They're bringing good news of great joy, which will be to all peoples. John the Baptist begins his ministry, and in Luke chapter 3, verse 18, we find that, that uh, John the Baptist is preaching the good news to the people. Jesus, in sharing his mission statement there in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, quoting from Isaiah chapter 61, we'll, we'll talk about how the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to preach good news to the poor. And this will be the, the trademark or the characteristic feature of Christ's ministry in preaching the good news to the villages. We find in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. But Jesus says to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And then the feature of Christ's ministry in Luke chapter 8, in preaching uh, the good news to the people, then Jesus in sending out his disciples in Luke chapter 9, they're, they're, they're going out to preach the good news of the kingdom. Up to this point, we're left to think that wherever the gospel goes, there is fruitfulness. Wherever the gospel goes, there's success. Wherever the gospel goes, there's butterflies and roses and good things. After all, Jesus' ministry up to this point has been met with great acclaim. Massive crowds are following after him. Miracles and signs are being performed. Uh, the crowds are standing in awe and marveling at the, at the wonderful deeds that he is performing. From our perspective up to this point, if we were to emulate Christ's ministry, then it must look very similar to, to, to what Christ has done, where, where the gospel ministry will welcome people in it, and they'll want the message that we are to share. And so even in our gospel ministry approaches, what we tend to do is to make the gospel or this good news of Christ sound good to the audience to whom we're speaking. Maybe you have found yourself presenting the gospel in a way that would appeal to your listener by suggesting that Jesus makes everything better, that Jesus heals your pain, Jesus fixes your problems, Jesus provides for your needs, Jesus makes you successful, and, and we might even sprinkle in that, that Jesus gives you the power to overcome your addictions. So we inadvertently paint the gospel in terms of good news because it puts that person in the center. Accept Jesus because he'll make your life better. Everything will go well. Uh, all of the difficulties that you're experiencing, Jesus will fix. He'll come and make your life better. But really, that's not good news when we put 
ourselves at the center. It's only good news when God is at the center. Maybe you've even adopted the, the gospel formula where God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And while that is a truth that we find in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, that's not exactly what the, the, the prophet Jeremiah intended when he wrote, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It avoids the, the present reality of the context that will help us to understand that, that the life of those to whom the prophet was speaking were not experiencing really good things. As a matter of fact, they were under siege by the Babylonian Empire. Their entire land had been decimated by the nations, by the empire of Babylon. They had been conquered, and Jerusalem really was the only city that was left. Everything else was left in devastation. And the famine that the, that the people in Jerusalem experienced while under siege was horrific. The, the things that moms and dads would do in order to survive the siege and make it through was unspeakable. Most of them would be killed by the armies of Babylon. The rest would be taken into captivity. From our perspective, that is not good news. And yet, this was the good plan of God to strip them of, of everything that they had rested their hope on and to help them try to understand that he must be preeminent in order for them to enjoy and experience the real good news that God wanted to give to them. It would only be good news as it was news that helped them to find their satisfaction in God alone. So with the introduction of Luke chapter 10, Jesus is now in the last six months of his ministry. He is on this downward slope, as it were. The, the, the climax of his ministry has been crossed, and now he, having set his face to go to Jerusalem, is now making his way to the cross. It will only be six months from this point. Jesus is going to move away from Galilee, and the, the center of his ministry, as we're going to begin to see here in our passage, will be centered in the, the cities around Judea and in the region beyond the Jordan known as Perea. Jesus will appoint 72 who will carry out this mission, who will send the message forward, who will do what he has called them to do in terms of speaking the good, not the good news of the gospel. But this good news of the gospel in not appealing to the masses and not seeming good to those to whom you are speaking to, what is going to help us as God's people to communicate the message that is hard to the listeners? What can we depend on? And so this morning as we look at Luke chapter 10, we're going to find five truths about God. Five things that we can depend on this morning as we carry out this gospel ministry. First, in chapter 10, verse 1, we find this. You can depend on the Lord for direction in ministry. You can depend on the Lord for direction. Notice, it says this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, you couldn't be more clear. 
You couldn't be more direct. You, you, you couldn't have instructions that were more simple. Go into the towns that I'm about to go. They knew what those towns were, and Jesus sent them out. The direction was clear, and they were able to follow those directions. And then in verses 2 to 12, we're not only going to find directions for the places there to go, but directions on how to carry out that ministry. But why does their mission seem so simple? And our mission here in the 21st century seems so difficult. Maybe you found yourself saying, if only God would make things that clear for me. If only God would, would give me very clear instructions on how my life was supposed to look, on, on how my ministry was supposed to play out. And the encouragement I have for you this morning is that God has done that. God has given you specific instructions that we find in his word. God has given us clear guidelines on what our life should look like. These instructions come from his word. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. The psalmist will say, the, the law of the Lord is perfect. And if we meditate on the law, that it will be a lamp for us. It will shine its way onto our path. God uses his word to direct our hearts. There are some 30 explicit verses throughout the scripture that speak about the explicit and specific will of God for us. And as we're faithful to carry out the, the will of God for our life day by day, then we're going to find that the, that the future will of God is, isn't as ambiguous or vague as it seems to be. God will make his plans clear as we follow the day by day, moment by moment instructions that he gives to us from his word. It's not complicated. It's not mysterious. Do we depend on the Lord for direction? Jesus has been modeling this for his disciples. He wants them to know that he's not just giving them instructions to follow, but that he himself is modeling his ability to carry out those instructions. We find at the very beginning of this verse, after this. Well, after what? Well, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, just a few verses ahead, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then we find in verse 53 that the people did not receive him, these Samaritans did not receive him because his face was toward Jerusalem. Why the sudden urgency to go to Jerusalem? <laughs> well, the sudden urgency to go to Jerusalem was a result of the clear instruction the Father had given to Jesus on the Mount Transfiguration just a few verses before. In Luke chapter 9, verse 30, we find that, Behold, two men were talking with him, to Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish, where? At Jerusalem. It's really important to understand that Jesus depended on the Father for direction. Jesus spoke the words that came from the Father. Jesus' life in ministry was guided and directed by the influence and the sovereign hand of the Father. And so Jesus, in commending his disciples to follow his direction, has emulated that as an example for us and for them of one who preeminently followed the direction of the Father. Luke picks up this story. 
moving uh, to Jerusalem, and, and we wonder where, what, is, what is the purpose for this kind of, of, of activity? And, and while Matthew and Mark don't give us the details of this, uh, the Gospel of John, we, we now find that, that Luke will merge with the Gospel of John in helping to fill out some of the story of what happens after his Galilean ministry and now moving his way towards Jerusalem. In John chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, we find right after the feeding of the 5,000, the gospel writer communicating this truth to us. It says, after this, and that is after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. But we find in verse 9, After saying this, Jesus remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he, meaning Jesus, went also up to Jerusalem, but in private. This is the the account of what we're finding happening in Luke chapter 9. While the rest of the pilgrims would have followed the, the, the circuitous route around Samaria in order to get Jerusalem, Jesus will delay a little longer in Galilee and make a hurried trip through Samaria that we find in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when Jesus is making his way or setting his face to Jerusalem. This is what's happening. And then from John chapter 7 to John chapter 10, we find that Jesus is in and around Jerusalem. He's in the region of Judea. There's ministry that is happening there, and it's about a a three-month period of time. Jesus has learned to depend upon the direction from the Father. But you cannot only depend on the direction from the Father. You can also depend on the Lord for help, and that's what we see in verses 1 and 2. Notice it says again, after this, this is verse 1, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. These men were not called the apostles. They weren't a part of the 12, but they were sent in the same way. And Luke uses the same verb, apostello, to describe the ministry of Jesus sending these 72 out from him into the cities and villages where he's about to go. But, but who are they, and, and what do we know about them? Well, the number is 72 or 70, depending upon your translation. And we find that, that, that they have a, have a unique appointing by Jesus, we find here in our passage. This word, they were appointed, which, which means to mark out, to appoint to an office to give them a task. They were, they were called out of the, of the masses of disciples, the, the group of disciples that, that were continually following after Jesus. There was a, a massive group of disciples that, like the 12, were following Jesus wherever he would go. And, and so calling out another 70 uh, of these individuals, these followers, Jesus now commissions them with the same ministry that he's given to the 12. <laughs> now, why is that important? I think this is a strategic plan of Jesus. Jesus is now responding to what we found in the latter parts of Luke chapter 9. Some of the conflict that was taking place in the hearts of the disciples, now Jesus wants to respond to that by helping his own 12 disciples understand that they're not the only ones that are going to be carrying out this mission. Luke chapter 9, verse 46, 
Remember, there's an argument that arose among the disciples as to which one of them was the greatest. Remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 49, John will come to Jesus and say, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us. There was an issue of pride that was taking place in the disciples. There, there was an issue of, of ownership and, and, and thinking that, that, that they were it, that they were the, the ones who had arrived in some way, and, and Jesus wants to, to settle that misunderstanding by, by helping them realize, no, you will do this, and certainly I will use you to carry out my message, but, but you're not the, the only ones. I'm, I'm going to send help. I'm going to send support. I'm going to enlist others. I'm going to allow uh, the, the message to be carried out by a group of qualified individuals who have demonstrated in a similar respect uh, a desire to remain with me. So Jesus wants his disciples to understand that, that while there is a uniqueness about their ministry, that they're not the only ones. And so Jesus sends them out. And he sends them out in a way that also emphasizes their need to, to be helped that, that this isn't a ministry that rests on one. And notice he says he sends them out two by two. Again, reinforcing the, the significance of, of partnership in ministry and, and depending on one another. But, but also that the, 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 the um, validity or integrity of the message would, would only be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And that also is a function of this sending uh, call that Jesus gives to them. But then we move into verse 2, and we recognize again that there is a, a need to depend on the Lord for help. Notice it says, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, but this has often confused me, that Jesus is sending out the 72, and then he asks them to pray for the Lord to send out other laborers into the harvest. What, what, what is happening here? Are, are they sent, or do they need to pray for God to send? I think the reason why Jesus phrases it this way is while he has commissioned them into ministry, and, and by the way, as you remember in Luke's account, as, as the Lord Jesus himself Praise to the Father on the mountain, it is only through that process that, that the Father raised up these 12, and Jesus is able to identify who these 12 disciples would be. And now Jesus, in sending out these 70, or the 72, depending upon your translation, they would need to have the same kind of strategy. They need to, would also need to depend on the Lord of the harvest. You see, as they would begin their, their ministry, and, and as they would begin to see how, how overwhelming this ministry was, because after all, the harvest was plentiful. But as they would look around and, and see the, the limited number of, of individuals who were helping them in this harvest work, they would be tempted to then uh, step in front of God and, and begin to enlist others to help them. But this was not a ministry of recruiting that they were given. This was not a ministry of enlisting. This was not a ministry of sending that they were given. This is a ministry they had of depending on God. Because God was the Lord of the harvest. Because only God could enlist and empower and appoint 
and send his people. That ministry was dependent on God, who was the Lord of the harvest. And so what they would need to do is learn to depend on the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers who were also qualified and fit to do the work that they also were called to do. And in order to, to get the help that they needed from God, they could depend on him, but they would need to come to him in prayer, just as they had seen so often done in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And not just pray, but to pray earnestly. This is the word to plead or to ask, to beg, to implore. This, this is the same word that's used in Luke chapter 9 to, to describe this desperate father who's coming to Jesus to, to beg him and to plead with him to, to cast out the, the demon that was in his son. The disciples would need to learn to depend on the Lord of the harvest. He would be the one to recruit. He would be the one to send. He would be the one to select. He would be the one to empower. He would be the one to enlist and to entrust that ministry to those who were capable and faithful. Trust him to send help. And he is trustworthy. So these 70 could depend on the Lord for direction. They could depend on the Lord for help, but we find in verse 3, they could depend on the Lord for protection. Notice it says, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Why this analogy? Why would Jesus put it this way? Why this word picture? I, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves? What kind of picture is that? What is the purpose of this object lesson? The purpose or the point of what Jesus is saying is trying to describe their ministry in terms of innocence, to describe their ministry in terms of the vulnerability that they're going to face, to describe their ministry in terms of gentleness, in terms of innocence, in terms of their ability to, to demonstrate graciousness. They were going to be vulnerable. They were going to be open to attack. They were, they were going to be uh, easy prey. But as they trusted in God to help them, they would be the picture of those who, who represent the gospel in terms of faith. And remember, as we've said all along, that the righteous or the just will live by faith. And as they trusted God in their innocence not to defend themselves, they would be the perfect picture of this gospel message. You know, there would be no animal that would be as defenseless as, as a sheep. No animal would be more vulnerable. No animal was more at risk. No animal was more defenseless. And that is the point. It wasn't about aggression. It wasn't about fighting. It wasn't about conquering. It wasn't about winning and, and, uh, and grappling in order to, to have their message known. It wasn't about defending themselves or standing up for the rights. It wasn't about the, the in-your-face kind of ministry that we see so often. It was about laying down, submitting themselves in, innocent, in innocence and gentleness to God and depending on Him for this gospel work. When you think about an analogy of, of, of assembling an army, you don't think about an army of sheep. <laughs> and that was the point. Jesus will give similar instructions to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, where he will say, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be innocent in your ministry. Be dependent in your ministry. Be gentle 
in your ministry. Learn to depend on God for protection. So they could depend on him for direction. They could depend on him for help. They could depend on God for protection in the midst of their ministry. He would be faithful. But they could also depend on the Lord for provision, and that's what we see in verse 4. It says, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. And then in verse 7 to 9, Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what they set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Jesus' instructions that we find in verse 4 to greet no one on the road was not that they would be impolite in their manner of gospel presentation. It wasn't that they had an objective and they were going to ignore anyone else on the road. The, the reason for this instruction is because in the, the first century culture, being a, a very hospitable kind of culture, being the kind of culture of, of fellowship, uh, oftentimes what would take place is, is on the road you would, you would meet an individual and, and they would welcome you into their home and for the next several hours or even for several days, you would remain with them. You'd be obliged to remain with them before you could actually move out onto the mission that you've been called to. Jesus wants to emphasize not only the urgency of the mission, but he wants them to understand they can trust God along the way. You don't have to take care of your own needs. You can trust me to take care of your needs. And so when you find this person of peace that we're going to see here in this passage, they can remain with that person of peace and trust that God will be faithful to meet the necessities of their life and, and help to carry them from one place to the other. Rather than stockpiling, rather than networking, rather than moving about from place to place and, and getting the contributions of one home and then a, a contributions of, of another home and, and playing that off, they would, uh, in doing that, represent that their confidence wasn't really in God after all. And they would demonstrate, like the false teachers, an affection for money, an affection for comfort that really had little to do with the gospel. The point was to distinguish these true preachers of the gospel from the greedy false teachers. These false teachers were constantly looking to stay in the most comfortable and wealthy homes for a while and then move on, seeking to take advantage of as many people as possible. But, but these disciples who are, who are sent out from Jesus, these 72, are not to have that objective. They can trust God for provision. You know, when I, when I was in college, I was on a couple of summer traveling teams, and uh, wherever we would go, whatever church we would, we would go and attend and serve, this would be how we would do ministry. We would, we would be set up with, uh, with, a, with a host family. They would bring us to their home, and we'd pair up, and we would stay there for the week. Now, it was really easy to get jealous. <laughs> Some of my, uh, my teammates would be in homes that were really, really comfortable. You know, they would have the swimming pool. They would have the air conditioning. They would have their own bedroom and their own bathroom. They would, they would be, have all the, the, the best foods and the best experience, the, the best comfort. They, they would be in, in the, ro the room that had the, the most conveniences. And, and here I was, stuck on uh, a sofa couch, 
with, uh, with no air conditioning, trying to fan myself because I was so hot. And in the morning, I would have to eat grape nuts cereal, which, by the way, is neither grape nor nuts. <laughs> but that was enough. And you learn to depend on God for the good things that he would give. And that's the point here that Jesus is trying to commend to the 72. You can trust God for provision. He will take care of your needs. Now, now you may not have all your comforts, and that may be just the point to help drive this message home, to, to help these people that you are sharing the gospel with to understand that, it, that it's not about stockpiling more stuff, but it's about the, the gospel kingdom that, that sets your objectives, sets your sights on the things that really matter, and that's the, thing, the things of God. And so these 72 could depend on the Lord for direction. They could depend on the Lord for help. They could depend on the Lord for protection and provision, but they can also, as we find in verses 5 and 6, they could depend on the Lord for results. Notice what it says. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And then in verses 10 to 12, notice. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for you, for that town. Regardless of the response, Regardless of the acceptance or rejection, regardless of the fact that you find a person of peace who welcomes you in because they accept this gospel message of peace, peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you find someone who, who is receptive to this message and wants to commend and support the, the work that you are doing, or you find a city that is totally antagonistic, totally refuses and opposes the message that you are to give. In either case, you can depend upon the God of the harvest. The, the God of the harvest is, is, is working before you in his providence. He is working in hearts, and, and he is the one who will allow the seed to take root. You can trust in a working God who is working salvation in the hearts of those whom he's called. You need to trust him. You need to depend on his providence. You need to depend on, on God who is working before you. There are a number of times, I'm sure, that, that we, in, in sharing the gospel with others, want to find new ways to, to get our point across. We, we want to find new ways to, to force the issue. We, we, we think that if we have the right apologetic, if we have the, we've communicated the gospel in just the right way, then it's going to be met with the right kind of reception. And so when we experience opposition, when we experience criticism, when we experience the kind of antagonism that we find throughout the gospel records, and especially as we continue to move our way through Luke chapter 10 and the following chapters, we begin to scratch our head and wonder, well, what am I doing wrong? Even with the people that we love in sharing the gospel with them, our family members, our co-workers, and, and, and students as you share the gospel with those that are in your classroom. 
don't be surprised when you face rejection. And, and don't feel like what you need to do is, is, is to be stronger in your gospel approach. No, you need to pray that the Lord of the harvest, who providentially is working in hearts, it is, it is his job, the Spirit's job, to convict the world of sin, and you can trust him to do his job. We are born not of human will, not of the flesh, but we're born from God, as we find in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It's God's work in God's will to accomplish what he will in the hearts of men. The Apostle Paul describes this truth in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, when he says this, "...in him we have obtained an inheritance." having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, how many things does God work according to his will? What do you, what do you see there in verse 11? He, he works many things according to the counsel of his will, right? No. He works most things according to the counsel of his will. Is that what we see? No. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. You can trust him with results. You can trust him with outcomes. You can trust him to bear the right kind of fruit in the heart that he has set his, his own uh, sights on to draw to himself. You can trust God for results. And what we find through Christ's ministry is really astounding uh, because what we're going to find is, is that in, in Jesus' ministry, while, while there were a number of crowds that, that were following after Jesus uh, up to this point, those crowds begin to, to fall away. And, and so that by the time Jesus dies and rises again, and the church is beginning there in Acts chapter 1, all, all the massive crowds, thousands of individuals, have converged to just 120. From every human standpoint, Jesus' ministry was an absolute failure. But it wasn't a failure because it was a, it was a ministry of faithfulness to God the Father. A ministry of faithfully representing the message of the gospel. Of faithfully representing the Father. Of faithfully depending upon God the Father to, to carry out the work and provide the direction and to provide the help to provide the protection and the provision, and also to provide the results. And so then, when you get to Acts chapter 2, all of this preparatory work of Christ's ministry is now going to flourish through these disciples. And that would be another object lesson to help demonstrate the power of God working through the message that has been received from Christ and the, the power of the, the working Holy Spirit working in the hearts of those who hear the message, will bear fruit, and God, who is the Lord of the harvest, will ensure that the harvest is bearing the fruit in the way that he intends, so that all things work according to the counsel of his will. The question for us this morning is, do we trust in the counsel of God's will? Do we trust in the, the strategy that, that God has set up for us? Do we, are we those who embrace the mission that we have received from Jesus, received from God? Do we depend on the message that, as the Apostle Paul will say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to everyone who believes. 
Do we trust in God to do the work? Or do we trust in our own ingenuity? Or when we don't see that we are those who are quite as gifted as somebody else, we, we, we leave the work to them. And in so doing, we are demonstrating from our lives that we don't depend on God for ourselves. He, he's, 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 he's big enough to help this individual, but for whatever reason, he's not big enough to help me. May God help us in this coming week to pray earnestly to the God of the harvest to begin to yield and bear fruit through the ministry that he has for us. Because you remember in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship created by Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, which means that, that everyone in this room who, who loves Jesus Christ, who is a follower of, of Jesus, who has believed him by faith, you have been called by God and, and ordained before the foundations of the world a work for you to do that only can be done by you. Will you be faithful to depend on God to carry out the gospel ministry that he has called you to? Are you faithful in the moment to exist in the atmosphere of dwelling on the word of God, fellowshipping with him, obeying him where you are, so that you, in remaining, in being obedient where you are, then in your faithfulness, then God can send you out with that message in that accurate representation of the gospel through your life, which shows up in your dependence on God for these things. Oh God, we thank you this morning for the mission that you have set before us. And we thank you that you have not left us alone. You have not left us without the power of the scripture and the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit and the, the confirmation that you are working ahead of us. Lord, may we be faithful to the mission objectives that you have set before us. And may we do it in a way that, that represents not only a dependence on you, but this gospel picture that shows up because of the faithfulness of God. Call our attention to things that matter this morning and be pleased through the expression of our obedience in this coming week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming this morning.